right, go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to borrow your stand. Is that all right? I mean, like you would say no, you know? <laughs> well, I'm really glad to be here. Um, if we haven't met, like Treb said, my name's Stephen Pittman. I'm an elder here at the Vine. I, uh, l- last time I was up here, it was about a year ago, and I was talking about my health, and so I'm really glad to not be doing that this time. Um, if it's your first time here, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Um, we, yeah, we're just so glad that you're here. I, just a little bit about me, um, grew up in Tulsa, ended up going to OU for undergrad. That's where I met Megan, my wife, and uh, we started coming to the Vine. We got engaged when we were seniors and started coming to the Vine up to Oklahoma City uh, toward the end of, uh, end of college. Um, and then right after that, uh, when we graduated, we did two years of ministry with Campus Crusade with Crew down in Norman. There are a lot of people around here that are involved with Crew. Uh, it's a really awesome organization. We, we wouldn't get, we would give anything for those two years again. I mean, those were fantastic years, and um, I've gotten to get up here, been, had the opportunity several times over the last few years to teach, um, but it's been busy. I'm, we moved up here after that. I'm, I'm in med school, and um, I don't know. Glad to be up here now. It's been a while, so. Um, we've been talking through the book of John. And we kind of finished this section over the last couple of weeks, uh, kind of called the prologue. Today we're starting a new chapter, probably a very well-known passage to many of us, uh, where Jesus turns water to wine. Break the news to you. Um, but I think there's some really cool things in it. But before we kind of get into that, I'm just going to kind of backtrack and just, you know, go over what we've done. So John says in, in John 20, he says that he recorded all of these things in his gospel, um, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there are the three synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're very similar in that they're kind of historical, chronological views of the, the uh, ministry of Jesus. Gospel of John is written, he's very clear in his intent, and it, it follows less of a strict chronological kind of order, and it's more theological. theological. So he says, Uh, you know, way back in chapter 20, but he also makes it very clear at the very beginning, listen, the point of this gospel so that you might see the things that Jesus did, the things that were said about him, the things that he said, you might believe that he is God, that he is the son of God. So the first week, the very beginning of the book, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is saying, look, from eternity past, Jesus was in heaven as God, ruling and reigning. And he broke into this world as the word of God. God spoke and life, and and Jesus' life was the kind of inbreaking of God's word into humanity. And so Jesus was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God. They're not separate. And then we moved on and talked about uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist makes it very clear that he is not the Christ, but he is instead making way for the Savior, right? So he's announcing. He says, um, behold, to the disciples, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, He says that I'm I'm not the Christ. I'm unworthy to untie the thong of his sandals. Like I'm, and so he's announcing and proclaiming the Christ, the Messiah that you've been waiting for is almost here. Here he is, and he announces him. And the disciples that were with John the Baptist end up turning and being so enamored in Jesus, start following Jesus. As John is obviously saying, I'm not him, this is him. So they're like, all right, we'll follow him. So they start following Jesus, and they are so captivated by Jesus, the things that are said about him and, and who he is and the things that he says, 
they can't help, we talked about, can't help but share with others, right? So um, like last week we talked about Nathaniel and um, just the desire to share with the one because Jesus so changes us when we encounter him. Um, so today we're starting kind of a new section of John. It's called the Book of Signs, and it's the next 11 chapters. And John specifically uses the word sign and not miracle um, because a uh, miracle is something that obviously displays power. It creates awe. It's something, you know, that grabs attention. And a sign is that also, but it adds a kind of a revealing factor, right? And so these are, this is the book of signs, chapter two, 2 through 12, because Jesus is performing miracles, but there are signs revealing his glory. There are signs manifesting that he is God, that he is the Son of God, that he is here to reveal something. So I think glory, as I was reading, thinking through this, the idea of glory is, uh, I think, often passed over for us, honestly. I think there's a lot of words like majestic and loving and faith and just a lot of Christianese words, you know, that we just kind of pass over. It's like, okay, God's glorious. But I think it's actually very ingrained in who we are. Like, I think it's, it, 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 uh, it's relevant for everyday lives. Um, I'll give you an example. I think that we know very clearly that we're not glorious. I think that there is an inherent understanding in us, and on Monday or on a Friday or whatever, we wake up that there's something awry, that there's something not glorious. And so we latch on and try to become glorious by looking to things and associating with things. And So, example, uh, a few years ago, we were on a ski trip. It was before Megan and I were married, um, on a ski trip with my family. And my brother and I were um, stopping at one of those, like, restaurant bars, you know, for a drink. He got a drink. I got a hot chocolate. And uh, it was at the time, you know. So, um, but we're, we're, we're standing there at this outdoor restaurant bar and just hanging out as brothers. And he, we look over and there's, there's Bill Murray. I kid you not, like the real guy. And you don't see a lot of famous people. You know, we're from Oklahoma. And so that's fine. That's cool. Well, we start freaking out. It's Bill Murray, like famous person. Got to get a picture with him. You know, just got to do something you want to be like, play it cool, but be, be respectful. But it's like, can I get a picture with you? Well, so I just kind of all hyped up and, uh, I don't know if I had a digital camera or phone. I mean, it was years, a few years ago, but um, somehow I, we, we got this awesome picture with my brother with Bill Murray, and we show it, show the picture. Yeah. <laughs> we were just so excited, you know? Like that, you have to take my word for it, but that's Bill Murray. Uh, uh, I promise, it was really Bill Murray. But we were so excited, we ran back, and was like, we got this picture of Bill Murray! Um, he was actually, if you find a picture of him nowadays, you can compare the back of his head, and I'm sure it's accurate. So I didn't ask my brother if I could use this picture. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's really telling that we understand there's something not glorious about us. We try to associate with other things that appear glorious, you know? Like, we... If, if Russell was walking down the street, right, you'd do something, you'd Instagram it, or, you know, we are longing to become more glorious. And so despite the fact that that, is, that might not be like the central theme to Jesus turning water into wine today, as we talk through glory over the next few weeks and over the next few months, keep this in mind. Glory is very relevant to who we are. Um, so with that being said, uh, we're going to read, uh, grab your Bibles. We'll be in John 2, starting in verse 1. Um, and I'll pray for us. Father God, thank you um, for your word. Thank you we can just meet and 
talk about how glorious you are. God, we know that, know that there's so much about you yet for us to learn. God, there's so much about you yet for us to, for us to understand. And God, we just we want to know you. Um, that's the purpose of us even just being here today is to just know you. We want to experience you. We want to be changed by you. Um, God, and in that, we want to, to enact change in the world as we reflect you. Um, Father, I pray that as we go, read through your scripture this morning that um, really what John intended, what Jesus intended through this interaction would be evident that um, I wouldn't get in the way of that. And um, yeah, that we would walk out of this place more in love with you. Um, let's take a moment and just, just pray that whatever you've come in with today, whether it's worry or anxiety or there's just something going to keep you from really engaging with the Lord, just ask him to take that out of the way. Just ask him to quiet your heart, um, that you might taste and see that the Lord is good, that you might enjoy him, that you might grow in just intimacy with him. If there's somebody around you, um, pray for somebody around you. Pray, maybe it's somebody you came with, maybe it's somebody you've never met. Um, pray the same for them. Pray that they would know the Lord deeply and that this would be a time where whatever they're dealing with would just fall away, that they could meet with him. Father, we, we love you. Jesus, thank you for breaking into our lives and into our world. Um, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, verse 1. Here we go. John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants uh, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Okay, so probably pretty well-known passage, uh, maybe something you've heard of before. I mean, a lot of people, even if you haven't grown up in the church, have heard like, Jesus turned water into wine, cool. Um, but there's a lot going on here. And I think a lot of times we, we don't experience the depth of Scripture. Our time with the Lord in the mornings or, or wherever it may be um, honestly can be kind of lame. And I think we, it's that, it can be that way because we don't ask passages questions. Right? Like, there are a lot of questions asked in this passage. And a lot of times, I'm just as guilty. We'll read through something like, all right, well, he turned water to wine, miracle, he's powerful, got it. What's the next one? But in reality, there's a lot of things here that we should be asking questions about. Like, okay, um, why, why does Jesus' mom care about the wine? Okay? Like, what? Is she a caterer? You know, like, is this the family? Like, what, what's important there? Okay, so why does Jesus say, why doesn't Jesus say, hey, mom? He says, woman. 
you know? What's the significance of these stone jars, you know? Why, maybe one of the biggest questions is, why does, why does Jesus in his very first miracle sign not, like, blow something up, you know? I mean, instead, it's this very discreet kind of, he, he, I mean, he changes water into wine, but it's like only the disciples really see, the groom of the wedding doesn't even notice, right? It's the, the head waiter doesn't even really know where the wine came from. He attributes it to the groom. So there's, if we ask questions, if we slow down and just, in our quiet times even, write down questions like, okay, I need to ask this. I need to ask this. I need to ask this. I think God would reveal parts of his character that we've yet to, to really understand or even notice that are coming out in scripture. So th- those are hopefully some questions we're going to answer as we go through this. Um, so village culture of uh, kind of times in, in these times in Palestine were very, uh, weddings were very important. Um, the Jews saw weddings, they saw banquets in general as kind of this sign of heaven. When they thought of heaven, they th- looked forward to a banquet. And Jesus even says that. And the, the wedding banquet kind of being the foremost model or symbol of this future uh, reuniting with the Lord in heaven. And so banquets and, and weddings in particular were very significant. And back then, you know, engagements nowadays, it's like, okay, can I put on Facebook that I won up my buddy and like flew a helicopter through crop circles to say, you know, I proposed. It's like, that's what we do nowadays. For them, it's, and it can be very just glamorous and big, but for them it was very permanent and very heavy and um, involved kind of everyone in town in the sense that once the proposal, the betrothal, um, occurred, everyone knew about the wedding. And the wedding might have been a, a big event of the entire year for this village, right? Everyone was maybe invited um, because of the heaviness associated with the banquet in heaven, right? It wasn't just, you know, a ceremony. Um, so that's kind of where we're coming. Um, these are probably like week-long maybe celebrations. If you think there's a, a parable in Matthew 25 called the wise and foolish maidens where Jesus talks about how... Um, the, the bridegroom goes at night, marches, there's a procession to the house of the bride and like retrieves her and takes her back to his house to start this long ceremony. And it was so heavy that appropriate gifts needed to be given. And um, I mean, you can't run out of things like wine, you know, at a week-long celebration. So there's just significance here. So we're gonna start in verse one. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Um, okay, so it's in Cana. Uh, we've started out um, talking about John the Baptist and kind of they're, they're in Galilee. We don't know exactly where Jesus is right before this. We don't know if they traveled for a few days. Um, he says on the third day, so um, he's kind of been tracking chronologically with this, um, with, with the disciples, but with Jesus' interaction with the disciples, but um, they're traveling, and they come to Cana. It's a small village north of Nazareth. And it's probably a pretty big wedding. I mean, G- talk about an inclusivity. Jesus is just brings the disciples that are with him, you know, and Jesus' mom is there. And we later find out Jesus turns 120 gallons of water into wine. Um, it's over like 600 bottles of wine. So it's like this is not a little small gig. This is a big wedding. Um, may have been a close friend of the family. We have no idea. Um, Nevertheless, here we go in, in verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
It's like, why does, why does Mary want Jesus to take care of this? Like, why? And he even responds, like, why are you involving me in this? She might have, one theologian said, you know, she might have been part, a caterer. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That might be a speculation. It's probably speculation. Um, likely. Um, I think, you know, this is Jesus' first miracle. This is his first major sign. But Mary expects something from him. She at least expects him to be able to do something about this situation. She probably suspects that there is something very special, obviously, leading up to even him performing miracles. Like, she's received this message from the Lord, from the angel saying that (laughs) you have a special son. So she expects something from him. But Jesus responds, I was like, woman, why do you involve me? And it's weird that he uses the word woman. Um, Woman might actually be a little harsh, uh, for kind of like the English translation, dear woman might be a little in, too endearing. As I was reading, kind of studying, several people agree that ma'am is maybe really what, what you know, kind of like in the South when you maybe bump in, it's like, excuse me, ma'am. Um, but it's not mom, you know? It's like, mom, why are you involving me with this? It's not what he says. He says woman and or ma'am. And I think he Everything that Jesus does is very intentional, right? It's not happenstance that he's here, that they run out of wine, you know, like it, we, we see this throughout scripture, right? He goes places intentionally. He says things intentionally. As the God of the universe, he is here with one purpose. And so Mary is honestly probably really trying to avoid the embarrassment of running out of wine, like embarrassed uh, or trying to, for the groom's sake, the groom was responsible for all, for all of this, for all the wine, for the finances of the wedding. And there's great embarrassment. Some even say that, that he could be, there could be a lawsuit filed against like the bride's family for traveling and for all that like entailed. If certain things did not happen, they could even maybe file a lawsuit against the groom. So there's like a lot of embarrassment entailed in this. And that's probably where Mary's kind of like, hey, I know there's something special about you. Can we just avoid some embarrassment? And Jesus sees her kind of temporal mindset uh, the, the very kind of just here and now, and he says, look, I am here with one purpose. There's kind of two things, I think, going on here. He, Mary's concerned with like this temporal, earthly kind of preventing of embarrassment, and Jesus is here breaking in as the God of the universe, ready to reveal himself. He's concerned with the eternal. And so when we talks about like the hour, my hour has not yet come, he's obviously referring to like hour of glorification, right? That's coming later in John when he will die for our sins on the cross, that he will um, be the atonement on our behalf. So he's here with one goal in mind. I think the other thing that's happening here is he's saying he's, he distances himself from mom. And he does this throughout scripture. And it's, it's really interesting. If you, in Matthew 12, something similar happens. He go, it says, while he's speaking to crowds, he says, while he's speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He doesn't dishonor his mom throughout his life. He, do, he loves her intensely and he makes sure that she's taken care of, but he is repeatedly distancing himself intentionally to reveal that there, there's no privilege like, his family members have no privilege when it comes to the throne of grace than anyone else. There's not special treatment for them. Just because, just because you're my family or, you know, that we have this earthly relationship does not mean that you're, any above, you're above anyone else in the sense that you need a Savior. 
There's a level playing field. And I think the application side of that, it should be, I think, sobering for those of us. I think we can be, um, for those of us that lean kind of on our familial connections, kind of our our track record, our long-term, you know, it's like, well, I've been, I, and I was coming to church before I could even walk, and now I started walking, and then I started driving, and it's like, I, I just, I'm, you know, it'll end up all right. You know, I'm a Christian American. Um, I think the fact that Jesus ingrains kind of this distancing from his family, although loving them, should be sobering to us. Like, we, we are not above anyone else. There's no privilege that we get for coming to church. Right? From having a great track record or from being born into a, a certain family. Like that should be, if not sobering, a little concerning if we lean on those things. On the, on the flip side, I think that can be incredibly comforting if your parents have never stepped foot in church. If you have grown up as a hot mess and, you know, you're like, this is your first Sunday here, like you are not behind we are all the same. We are all broken sinners in need of grace. And so he says, look, there's no privilege for my family, for my mom. And so he repeatedly refers to her a certain way throughout scripture. It's not unloving and it's not dishonoring to her, but he is here with one purpose as the son of God to redeem the world. Okay, so we'll keep going. In verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Um, and then he tastes the water, you know, and it's wine. And um, it's like, wow, this is really good wine. Um, honestly, if I'm being completely honest, when I read through this many times, I just think, wow, okay, so Jesus turns, turns like some drinking water into some drinking wine. That's pretty awesome. There's like chemical things going on and like, you know, it's a completely different substance. But if you slow down, John explicitly states these are like ceremonial washing jars, you know? They're stone, right? So um, stone, according to rabbinic law, like can't be, um, can't be turned dirty and have to be destroyed. So at the very least, these are big like stone water jars so that when these people travel to weddings from out of town, like, Wash their feet off, you know? Wash their hands. At the very least, it is a washing, they're washing jars of dirty, muddy, filthy water. But even more than that, I mean, John explicitly states they're ceremonial washing jars, right? So they are, they are what the Jews used to make themselves clean. And I don't think, it is not coincidental that the first sign and miracle that Jesus performs, he comes straight into a ceremony that that, that the Jews used to represent the, is a symbol of the future kingdom of heaven, right? Uniting with God. And he takes the ceremony that they used to clean themselves up and completely upends it. He says, look, my purpose, he's making it very clear, and he's going to do this for the next few weeks, as we, the next couple chapters. My purpose is to upend your ceremonial cleaning up to make yourselves presentable before God. And so he finds, although it's not, he's not blowing something up, he finds something very specific and very intentionally turns it over and he, he takes not just drinking water to wine, but takes filthy water and makes it choice wine, right? The head waiter essentially says, wow, like, you know, after, you, after people, you know, have drunk a little bit, uh, drink a little bit, 
you know, people normally bring out the not-so-good wine. Makes complete sense, you know? Bring out the box wine. Well, <laughs> Jesus brings out the best wine. He brings out the 500, you know? There's so much going on here that is significant, that is revealing of Jesus' glory. Um, he's, he's upending this kind of old order of Jewish law and custom and replacing it with himself. You know, wine will come to represent his blood that he shed on the cross so that we might be purified and invited into the kingdom of heaven, right? He takes the water and he fills these jars to the brim, right, with wine. There is a lavishness. There's like a foreshadowing of the provision, the abundance of his grace, right? It's not, it's not just like a drop here, drop there, but he takes 120 gallons of water, fills them to the brim, completely changes them with a representation of his future glory. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's really just, it's glorious. He saves the best, in verse, in verse 10, like we said, uh, the waiter says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Jesus brings out the best wine. And I think it's a display of his purity, right? If, if wine, and, you know, when we take communion, it's representing the, the, resurre- the death and resurrection of Jesus and how we have access to God through the shedding of his body, his blood, and, and wine comes to represent that for us, and so he, he makes the wine as pure as possible. Like, that's, that's clearly very important and very intentional. So, kind of finishing up, says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in, believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. So, kind of wrapping up, like, John uses the word sign, right? He, he doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign because Jesus is, re- he's performing a miracle, but... He's revealing that he is God. He's revealing not only, hey, am I, am I here, God, breaking into the world, but also this is what's going to go down, right? His glory is so evident in all of this. But why doesn't he blow something up? I mean, I don't know why I keep thinking of that, but I mean, just like, why doesn't he do something that catches everyone's attention? Instead, at the very end, it says, um, he revealed his glory, and then of 11, and his disciples believed in him. Like, why not get the groom, you know? <laughs> like, the bride, you know, like all the people that are around. And I think it, it reveals, and Treb talked about this last week when we were talking about encountering Jesus and um, the importance in Scripture of God pursuing the one, right? The one is always important. Jesus is intentionally creating a moment for his disciples to take the words that have been said about him by John the Baptist, the words said by him to the disciples, and is giving them just kind of this, this sneak peek, right? This, this opportunity to couple like those things said about him and by him to a sign, to a miracle, to this revealing of his glory. And he's like, look, I'm going to, in my grace, give you this opportunity to put it all together and believe. And so he doesn't, he doesn't just make it some mag- magnificent thing, although he will perform things for thousands of people. In this one moment, it's something small and, and intimate, although incredibly deep. 
And so I think as we look through all of this, there's Jesus' glory is revealed in a lot of ways throughout this passage, right? He's glorious in that as the Son of God, he breaks into the world with one purpose in mind, right? My eye is on my, my purpose of, of redeeming the world, of the cross, right? And I will not be swayed by the agendas of people. I'm not going to be swayed by the temporal or, or just little things. I'm here to rescue my people and to bring them back into intimacy with the Lord. Like, that's one way he shows his glory. Another way he shows his glory is that he, upend, he has the power to completely upend a Jewish ceremonial wash. Like, hundreds of years of ceremonial cleanliness, he comes in and he completely flips everything upside down and says, look, I'm replacing your means of approaching the throne of God changing it with myself. I am the only way, and I am filling to the brim, right? I am replacing it with my representation of my blood, and there's a lavishness. He reveals his glory in that there's this like abundance and to the brim fullness as the satisfier, satisfier of God's wrath, satisfier of the, the, the law. He, he fills that. So there's so many ways that his glory is revealed. I mean, the purity of the water, right? I mean, there's so many ways. And so he's inaugurating kind of this a new means of relationship with God. There's no longer this need to sacrifice, to clean up, to approach the God of the universe, but instead we have access through him. And he's glorious. And so kind of just leaving with this question. As we talk through the next few weeks, the next few chapters about the glory of God as revealed through Jesus, what, what, what does glory have to do with your life? Like, there's a funny picture because it's, like, ridiculous that we were so excited about it because it's an awful picture. Um, I actually didn't ask for my brother's permission to use that, so you don't know. Um, but how does glory affect your life? You get a promotion, right? You, you have certain friend groups or, you know, I'm sure you see a famous person. Glory, we're always fighting for it. I think it's very unsatisfying. And yet the Savior of the world broke into humanity and very intimately reveals his glory and says, you can follow me. You can associate with me. Come with me, right? That's what he does with the disciples. And he does the same for us. We are given the opportunity to associate with the most glorious one that has ever walked the face of the earth. If I really thought that I was that associated with that one, that person of so much glory, there's a lot that would probably change in my week. There's a lot of ways that I currently seek glory that I probably wouldn't. So as you're, you're driving home, maybe you rode with somebody, maybe not, maybe you're involved in a community group or something, sometime this week, sometime today, husbands, as you ride home with your wives, bring this up. Lead in the family by asking this question. How, how are we chasing glory and how is it unsatisfying? What would my life look like? Um, what would our lives look like if we were so satisfied by the glory of Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, um, just thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that um, he is glorious because I am not. God, we, um, we, we know that deep down, but I think it's so hard for us to, I don't know, live in that truth from a day-to-day basis. God, we, we're sinners in need of your grace and we're in need of of heart change. Um, Father, thank you that we don't have to clean ourselves up to approach you, that you have broken into this world and pursued us. 
Jesus, that you filled the jars to the brim. Um, there's nothing left for me to do, for us to do. God, I just pray that um, you would change us this week. God, that if there's, there's anyone in here that, that has never associated with Jesus, that is still just fighting for their own glory, has never given up to him, um, experienced the freedom of that relationship. God, I pray that they um, would talk to somebody today. I pray that they would come talk to me or um, our prayer team will be in the back if you want to talk to them. God, we just, we, we want this to be a place where we reunite with God because of, because of your grace. We love you. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.